0: One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We we're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: Right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 608 for the week of Sunday, March 30th, 2014. I'm um, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Mark Radiman. Welcome, Mark. Howdy, and
0: I don't know. I don't have anything bright to throw in there. Good to be here.
1: <laughs> it's all right. You'll save your bright insight for later in the show. Thank you very much. And welcome as well from the spaceflight group, Jason Ryan. Hey there, guys. How's it going? It's going great. Glad you're with us tonight. Thank you. All right. Now that we've got the whole gang here, and we've got you, our listeners here, let's dive right into things. And to start off, we are going to talk with the latest Soyuz launch. The latest Soyuz launch was the launch of the TMA-12M, and that occurred from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan at 5.17 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, March 25th, which is also 9.17 p.m. GMT, or 3.17 a.m. Wednesday local time in Kazakhstan. The launch occurred exactly as planned, however, Rendezvous did not. It was supposed to be another one of the rapid dockings, which means that within about eight hours of launch, the Soyuz will dock with the International Space Station. This has been done since the start of 2013, in a way to try and prevent crews from being cramped this whole time inside of their little Soyuz capsule, which is not large at all. The first two burns of their engines went fine. However, they were supposed to do a third burn. The issue was is that apparently it was either not in the right orientation or not facing the correct direction, For some reason, which has yet to be determined, but as a result, the third burn did not occur and was aborted. However, in doing so, they decided to go for the traditional two-day approach, which a lot of people were worried about at first. However, they forgot that for the last 15 years before 2013, that's exactly how it was done. So instead, they went for a 48-hour, 34-orbit rendezvous, and on Thursday at 7.53 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 11.53 p.m. GMT, the Soyuz docked safely with the International Space Station. In doing so, three new crew members boarded the International Space Station, and that is cosmonauts Alexander Ksvortsov and Oleg Artemyev, as well as NASA astronaut Steve Swanson. They are now members of the Expedition 39 crew, in addition to Commander Koichi Wakata of the Japanese Space Agency, Cosmonaut Mikhail Turin, and NASA Astronaut Rick Mastracchio. So they will be spending a few months on board, and that was a little scary though. To say the least. Because I know anytime you hear abort or something right after a launch, you tend to worry, but Thankfully, this wasn't anything truly to worry about, but it is kind of concerning of what happened to the Soyuz.
2: Yeah, the the thing there is, uh, you know, it's two parts. One, the, the Russians had made a comment right after Shuttle era closed out that we were in the epoch of Soyuz. And, uh, you know, I just, I got to ask, did, does it feel that way to anybody else? I don't
1: know if that's the word I would use in front of, of Soyuz. <laughs> but, um... One of our listeners, Richard, sent in a comment asking us to talk about this, specifically the era of reliability of Soyuz, which is something Gene has talked about a lot on the show. Um, and, I mean, if you think about it, there's been plenty of issues shortly after there was the progress failures, which didn't seem like that big of a deal, but of course here they are touting Soyuz, (laughs) and it's the same booster that our astronauts are flying on, and now finally it happened to a vehicle with astronauts on board.
0: Wait a minute, Sawyer. I, I sort of vaguely remember, and not all the details, but talking about a problem with the Progress launch where they had a sensor installed upside down. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was one of them. And- well, hey, wait a minute. Was, did you just say uh, Progress or Soyuz? I mean, I'm, I'm, I heard the same thing uh, for Proton, right? Proton, that was it, yes.
0: Was it Proton? Excuse me.
2: Yeah, and ended up doing a, a face plant into the dirt with, like, a bunch of clone-ass satellites on board.
0: Well, you know, the official response to... To this glitch on uh, on the Soyuz launch would just be well. This just indicates that spaceflight is not easy. That uh, it, you know there are no guarantees, and we do our best. And occasionally we have a problem, and we learn from uh, learn from things that go wrong and, and make things better. anybody want to buy that? No comment.
1: <laughs> then I'll comment. <laughs> I'm not buying that. I, well, I'm kind of buying that. Obviously, spaceflight is very difficult. Uh, And thankfully, I know that they would also say, well, this just shows how reliable the Soyuz is because it caught the error and detected it. Well, yeah, but then again, it shouldn't be happening in the first place. And aren't you supposed to have redundancy anyway? So that's a good thing that you're doing what you're supposed to.
0: (laughs) Well, bad news would have been if the software accepted an error and went ahead and and fired anyway, which would have uh, probably resulted in a mission abort uh, at some point, landing somewhere
1: yeah very true we've heard enough of cosmonauts having to fend for themselves against bears and other things in the woods
2: yeah you know they have shotguns i don't know if they still do but back in the day they used to have like a shotgun or some type of firearm in in the soyuz capsule
1: for that exact reason in case they encountered wildlife in the remote area where they landed incorrectly (laughs) yep it's kind of sad where they had redundancy built in for when
2: their spacecraft landed wrong
1: and that was a gun
2: Yeah, they have a 12-gauge redundancy built in. That's not all they got. (laughs) Redundancy nonetheless, but
1: is it still a reliable spacecraft? Yes. Should they be touting their reliability? No, they shouldn't have been doing that back in 2011, and obviously, case in point, they still shouldn't be doing it now. But the crew is safely on board, and I know that caused a heck of a Twitter scare when that happened, and... Thankfully, though, it wasn't as big of a deal as it was made out to be, considering, basically, they just went back to 2012 in terms of how they got to the space station. I just feel bad for the guys cramped inside.
2: Yeah, because there they are, thinking they got six days, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, I mean, six hours, and they're like, yeah, oh, by the way, you know, that whole six-hour flight thing. I hope you brought the 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 porta potty bags, because you're going to need it. Great, good times.
1: Oh, boy, it sounds fun when you put it that
0: way.
2: I know, I can always make a colorful phrase, can't I? <laughs> that's why we have you on.
0: and so what will be, they be thinking about uh, five or six months from now when they go to uh, return will they be wondering well how is this going to work out yeah but the
2: question there is is, is that system I, I mean I guess they would use the same engines to re-enter the atmosphere wouldn't they
1: yeah it's the same engines to use the burn so it's the same software if nothing else that they're going to use to fire it So whether it was a software issue or a hardware issue, they're going to have to use that same spacecraft to get home. I mean, if it's software, they can patch something, but that's a concern.
0: Well, that might have been the go-up subroutine, not the go-down subroutine. We'll have to wait.
1: Exactly. Nonetheless, an interesting point.
0: Oh, I do have one little helpful thing for you, Sawyer. Uh, From Twitter, Astro Nicole, which is Nicole Stott, uh, on the uh, launch of the Soyuz, she said, lift off Woohoo, Swanee, Sasha, and Oleg on their way. Pronunciation should be a little easier with, with that version of their names.
1: <laughs> there we go. That's what I'm calling them all from now on. It makes life <laughs> a lot easier. Well, if nothing else, the crew is scheduled to have a busy time up there. While they are up there, they are expecting arrivals of SpaceX cargo ships as well as Orbital Sciences. Cygnus progress vehicles—they've got a lot coming towards them if they actually launch—and that brings us to our next story with the recent range issue that delayed a few launches. And I'm gonna hand this one off to Jason.
2: Yeah, guys, that was a load of fun. We, uh, like I was telling Sawyer on the before the show, we—I had like a load of events uh, about a week and a half prior, and I'm, I'm running around like crazy. And then I get back, and they had the contamination of dragon's uh, skirt, and so, you know, its its skirt blew up, and the rocket didn't go with it. I said, okay, so ULA lets us know the time to go out and set remote cameras, and I drive all the way over there, arrange for the hotel. Thankfully, there were sponsor, so it didn't cost me anything, and then we set up remote, spent about three hours out there with the mosquitoes having a very long smorgasbord lunch, and uh, we get everything set up, and I go back to the hotel, and one of my contacts at the 45th Space Wing says, oh, "Up launch scrub. I'm like, I, I, I beg your pardon, and uh, there weren't really a lot of details other than there was an issue with range instrumentation at being out, an outage. So I just said, well to heck with it, I'll, I'll have one of our photographers, because we have a staff of like, I want to say at least three or four photographers, and then two or three riders that covers the Cape, you know, part of Team Canaveral, and I said, guys, I don't want to stay here three days to go pick up my camera, can you guys just pick it up for me and hang on to it, which of course something we've arranged back in the past, not a big deal. And then more details start coming out. And since I heard fire, of course, I had to look into that. And then the Air Force really didn't give me a lot. Um, And I I have a a contact on the inside with their PAO there, and he's usually great. But this time he was kind of closed lip, and I was like, okay. And then we all – you know, we were out there at remote setup. And then when this happened afterward, the very first thing we were saying was, wait a minute. I don't know if you guys know this, but Slick 40 and 41 are essentially what is known as one pad. They, they, were, they were they were used back during the, the days that we, we launched Titans. And so we were thinking, okay, well, if this causes the, the Atlas V with NROL 67 to scrub, you can bet that Dragon is probably not going to launch either. And then we started receiving word from NASA, and it seemed like everything was, yeah, sure, we're going to do this. not a big deal, the, you know, whatever. We got the information to come out to attend the events. And I, I asked NASA PAO and they didn't say a whole lot. They, they sent me to the 45th and the 45th didn't say a whole lot. But then eventually, you know, we were hearing fire, fire, fire and like, okay, well, that's, that sucks. You know, finally they said, yeah, it, Falcon 9 isn't going to launch. And we, we can't support the, the 45th said we cannot support anything until no earlier than uh, April 10th. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, you always want to get your facts straight before you post a story. Uh, we kind of did with a lot of outlets and we misinterpreted what they were saying t- from no earlier than being the new launch date for the Atlas five. When in fact that wasn't what they were saying, what they were actually saying was nothing can be supported. Nothing. We can even consider starting a launch until April 10th. Uh, you know, we got questions on, on our Facebook page someone sent me a uh, Facebook message, you know, and he was just op- apoplectic. I mean, he was just, Oh my God, this is the most horrible thing ever. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I didn't really have a lot of details and finally the 45th sends us a message and says, you know, an an announcement. It's basically, you know, the the range radar which tracks the launch vehicles as they go uh, uphill uh, out to the east, out into the Atlantic um, to make sure that they're doing they're, They're performing nominally and, um, it was out, so they can't launch. Uh, but we kept we kept being told there was a fire, and then all of a sudden we heard through the uh, statement that it wasn't a fire, or at least the suggestion was that it wasn't a fire, that it was a short circuit in the radar. And so again, we were, you know, of course we're like a bunch of you know old hens out there cuckling, you know, chuckling amongst ourselves. And we said, well, okay, if this is going on, then basically they're going to have to replace whatever short circuit it caught fire, whatever what really happened. And then they're going to have to replace it, test it, validate it, and verify it. So this is kind of big, and it also kind of points out a couple things. The first being is, let's just say, let, let, let's take it on the, uh, the slow end, or excuse me, the, the low end, the, the least impact. Say it's just a short circuit. Basically, we can't launch out of the, uh, A short circuit can stop all launches at, at the Cape, dead in their tracks. And that's, that's exactly what this event proved. And on the bad end, if it's a fire, then why did the fire happen? You know What were the instances? And I could not get those, those questions answered. So there's a lot we still don't know about this. And, uh, I mean, in the end, uh, to be honest, I, I don't try to put importance on missions. I just cover the missions. But it seems to be impacting SpaceX more than ULA negatively because – you got to understand, under CRS, uh, SpaceX has a minimum of 12 launches they got to fly to the station. Well, they delivered, they've flown two. Now, this point here, I, I'm not exactly 100% on, but I know that the contract stipulates through 2016. Well, they just lost a month, and, and I, anyone that follows SpaceX can do the math. They started launching the Falcon 9 in 2010, and at their best, they've launched two missions a year. I mean, they didn't launch at all in 2011, so they're only launching at the rate of about two to three missions a year. And when you think about all the other missions they have to do, like like Cassiope, CES-8, uh, TICOM, can they make that? I, I don't know. And at this point, I think the range really dealt uh, SpaceX, could have could have dealt, let me say that, uh, quite the blow. So it's it's an interesting situation, and it's one that... The, the PAO at NASA in the 45th, they, they've learned to take a severe dislike to me because I'm not letting this go. I want to find out more about what's going on because it's kind of shocking that if it is just a short circuit, look at all the havoc that one short circuit caused.
1: Wow, yeah, it's, uh, that's amazing how much effect it's having on all of these different vehicles and all these different launch things, and uh, the confusion just sounds confusing, I guess, but you know, how do you deal with something like that?
0: I'll throw something in from my... Uh, vast experience with old equipment and electronic systems maintenance uh, one thing that I've seen is we have gotten theoretically in some cases newer technology is that uh, in order to satisfy the the budget constraints of a system uh, there may not be as many spares on hand as you would have in the past for older technology. And so it's funny, but when I saw one of the scrubs and it said it was going to be no sooner than whatever it was, maybe two days, I thought, hmm, it like they would be waiting for something to come in on FedEx the next day, put it in, get the system back up, check it out, and then go. And, of course, I have no idea if that's right. I've got no information on this. I just know how things happen when you have a problem. If you can, if it's, there can be problems that can take some absolute time to fix, and that could be a problem in itself. And I'm wondering if certain situations that uh, would scrub or delay a launch, if that doesn't stop the clock as far as the amount of time, talking about SpaceX, the amount of time that they would have to launch a certain number of missions. Um, I, I would think that would probably be the case. There's probably something in a contract that when things go beyond their control, when it's, somebody else's uh delay that that's caused on it that uh spacex doesn't get uh demerits you know for those things well you know uh,
2: i'd like to interject something there real quick and it's one of the people that reached out to me you guys mentioned the, the comments you get and crs3 has been delayed six times at least i think five or six times and this was the only time that to my knowledge it wasn't Response, relating to something that was dealing with SpaceX, it was something that was totally out of SpaceX's control. And whereas all the other delays, I didn't hear a peep from the the Twitterverse or the, the the commenters, whatever you want to call them. But all of a sudden, here people are just they're, they're they they went completely off the rails, demanding answers, you know. And a lot of them were blaming NASA when NASA it had nothing to do with NASA. It was with the Air Force. And so it's like, okay, where were you when SpaceX slipped? Time one, time two, time three, Time four, and time five. now, all of a sudden that it's not spacex's fault. you guys are just demanding inquiries, and you want the Senate to have a full hearing on it, and it's like really is is that what you guys are like? I mean seriously, I, I don't know if that if you guys noted any of that but I've noticed a bit of it i'm like don't don't be that guy, don't be like that. I mean, come on,
0: yeah, good point. It depends on who the finger can be pointed at for blame as to whether Certain people would uh, even point the finger of blame, or not.
1: Exactly, all that over a simple little radar issue. Go figure. What an interesting community we're a part of. Of what takes precedence. Truer words. All right. Well, in the
0: meantime, Mark. So talking about, as I tend to so often do, electronics and systems. I saw a story from just a few days ago that work has begun to upgrade a Doppler radar wind profiler. At Kennedy Space Center, and this is another one of those kind of invisible assets that are part of of making a uh, a go call when they do their poll prior to launch. And a wind profiler is a system that uh, uses a in this case a system that's being replaced. It's being decommissioned to start with, and then a new system will go in but they've got 168 coaxial collinear antennas from an antenna field which occupies 3.7 acres it's northeast of the shuttle landing facility and what this wind profiler has done in the past is it's looking at winds from roughly 6000 to 60000 feet and the problem has been that this system is uh is old and its status was such that they NASA used it as a backup it couldn't be certified as a primary instrument so the profiler could rule out a launch if conditions were no go but if they were trying to base a go decision on the data from this wind profiler they could not because of the the category that that it was in as a backup system so they're taking this system out which is going to take about a month and a half There'll be a new system that will be, uh, work will progress to install it and get it in place. And then there'll be a, a, a test period where it will be on and running continuously and allowing the scientists to look at the wind data that it's re- receiving and compare it to routine balloon launches that are in the area. Now I remember at times on uh, launches we would hear, "Well, they need to, to release another weather balloon, and then we'll know if the winds are aloft or such that, that, we, can, uh, that we can launch a, a rocket or the shuttle back in the shuttle days." And apparently, and this is something I didn't realize but those weather balloons, depending on altitude, can take up to an hour to get up to the altitudes where they need to get the actual wind data. And it also mentions that during uh, the winter time, the jet stream dips south towards Florida, and it can push a uh, balloon 100 miles out to sea uh, during the period where it's you know, uh, climbing to get to the altitudes they want to read. So anyway, this new wind profiler system that's going to go in will give them a complete wind profile every five minutes. It'll become a primary system. It'll allow them to make go calls for launch based on this alone, and it will uh, be a vast improvement over what they've had. It'll be commissioned for primary use in the fall of 2015. So, uh, a good bit of this year is just going to be installation and checkout, and then they're going to be looking at data off of it and uh, commissioning uh, approximately a year and a half—not quite a year and a half from now. So, I think it's kind of interesting. I get wrapped up in the tech stuff. I've so often wondered what does it mean when they say the Eastern Range. And uh, another little tidbit is the electronics. The the wind profiler radar that's being taken out of service the actual electronics are going to be pulled and sent to cape canaveral air force station and they're going to be used as as spares backup equipment for the system that they still have um, in service there which uh, make every dollar count you can't exactly go have something built if it was made Twenty. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm just saying a number. Something that was made 20 years ago can be a little hard to uh, to go and get parts for nowadays. So, uh, you know, being a good custodian of the property and the equipment that you have, and and not just throwing in the dump, is a uh, a good move. And I'm glad they have that communication between the parties that are out there.
1: Exactly. I know. That, you know. When you hear the launches, you do hear the weather balloons. I had no idea that took an hour. And to be honest. I didn't know this field even existed, so I, I mean, I can see why now that it, it's not up to date, but I think this is great to have more things just to help make sure a launch is better to go or better to call a scrub.
0: Well, now that I know it's there, I'm going to take a look at Google Earth at some point and northeast of the shuttle landing facility, see if I see a, a pretty good chunk of, uh, of dirt that, that's not grass, not swamp, not parking lot, not a building. And I bet that would be it. Although, to be honest, from the picture that I see, there really isn't much to look at. (laughs) It's just bare ground with some uh, posts uh, that are mounted probably about waist to chest height. You know, what looks like uh, cabling or or tubing or or such, which is the antenna array element. So there won't be much to see if you do look at it on Google Earth. But it'd be interesting to know where one of these resources is that's so much a part of the range.
1: Hopefully, the, in the future, this will be up to date, and then, um, I don't know, hopefully this thing just doesn't blow over. That was a terrible joke, and there was no setup to it, which is why it failed miserably. Boom, boom,
2: I'll be here all week, try the veal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of hard for me to help you out with that one.
2: Yeah, I think the only
1: thing that'll help me out with that is saying that that brings us to the end of <laughs> round number one. And uh, let's move on then to round number two. And to start things off... We're talking spacesuits. Well, NASA apparently is redesigning their spacesuit once again. Their Z series, which sounds like a car at this point, uh, is the current spacesuit design, or should I say next generation design. The Z1 you may have seen pictures of as they've been working with that recently, and in fact was one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2012. Well, this is the newest upgrade to that, the Z-2, which marks a few milestones, according to JSC and the NASA website. It'll be the first surface-specific planetary mobility suit to be tested in a full vacuum. Boy, these are mouthfuls. The first use of 3D human laser scans and 3D-printed hardware for spacesuits, which I think is really cool. Uh... The most advanced use of impact resistant composite structures on a suit upper and lower torso system. First integration of suit port concept with a hard upper torso suit structure. And most conformal and resizable hard upper torso suit built to date. Basically, in summary, the first space suit to use 3D printed stuff on it, and will have a hard upper shell instead of a soft upper shell, and in doing so, should be easier to resize as well. But that's not the coolest part. The coolest part is that you get to choose what it looks like. That's right. NASA has three designs listed online for you to go and vote for which of these you think is the coolest looking spacesuit. Uh, Apparently, all of these are very, very futuristic looking, and uh, honestly, think of any sci-fi movie, and you could see any of these probably making an appearance in it. There are three choices called biomimicry, technology, and trends in society. So uh, it's definitely worth going online to jsc.nasa.gov or visiting our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, and checking the show notes where there will be a link where you can vote to all of these. Because, boy, some of these are funny-looking.
0: I definitely like the fact that it's not the average plain white spacesuit. I mean, they got some uh, color stuff going on and, uh, you know, lime green and, uh, you know, some iridescent blue and stuff like that. And it reminds me of a, uh, a lady that I talked to at the first hundred year starship symposium who was talking about exactly that, which had to do with style. And of course, I know there's far much more to this than just design and style, but, uh, yeah, it's nice to see something different. Let's just leave it at that.
2: I don't know. I mean, they look kind of—I hate to use the word—but I guess I'm—I'm I'm old, and they look like not what I'm used to. I'm used to the white suits with the, you know, the iconic spacesuits that they had on Apollo and they had on, on shuttle with the you know the, the bulkiness. And then and the biker outfit—I I called it a while back—with those really sleek and really form-fitting. And this thing just looks—I don't know—not loving it. Don't don't really hate it. I just don't know. I mean, it's like okay.
1: To be perfectly honest, it looks like glow in the dark um, mutant modified Twinkies. It's the best way I can describe what they look like to me. Yeah,
2: I yeah I I can agree with that. I deeply can agree with that. I have no. I mean, I don't know. It's just uh, color me unimpressed at this point.
0: Of course, thinking about it, some of the astronauts uh, Sawyer that we've talked to, they've commented about how a suit fits or and doesn't fit, and the the Points where you have uh, pressure points on your body from the suit. I think the shoulder joints was mentioned. The hands, definitely, with gloves. Uh, your hands take a beating when you're on a on a extravehicular activity. And uh, you know, it, I'm sure from an astronaut's perspective, if it if it does the job, does it safely, and does it more comfortably for the astronauts, so that. Um, they've got more physical reserve at the end of a spacewalk to uh... you know to deal with more more tough things uh... you know they would probably be for it but if it didn't give them some real positive advantages over what they're used to eh.
1: yeah i mean at least the upper part is more adjustable because now it's not that every space suit is custom fit it's you find you pick and choose from the ones at the neutral buoyancy lab and you basically find which one's closest to your actual size, and that's what you use. So at least this will be slightly more adjustable. But yeah, some of these do look kind of interesting, to say the least. But if you do want your input, voting is open until April 15th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time.
2: I almost got a Tron vibe off of it. Did you guys get, get that at all with the glow-in-the-dark stuff? The yeah. one with the blue glow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Expect him to pull a disc off his back and, you know, derez the guy across from him or something. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Just like, okay. Well, that's the technology
1: one I think that looks very Tron like. In fact, all of them do. But, well, we'll leave that up to you to vote. And uh, maybe we'll see these in the future as humans move on beyond low Earth orbit and onto these other worlds where these spacesuits are designed for. That is. That may happen unless Charlie Bolden sticks to some of his comments. And, uh, Jason, I'll let you take this
2: one. Where does one even begin? Let me say that I've had the good pleasure of, of meeting General Bolden on numerous occasions. He's a very friendly, likable guy. I mean, up until he became NASA Administrator, I, he was probably one of my favorite astronauts. But since taking over that job, to say he's like the Joe Biden of space, um, he just says these things that make, I'm like, I, I cringe. Um, and we'll, we'll go back to the, the Al Jazeera interview maybe a little bit later. But th- recently, he was called on the carpet, I believe, for a congressional hearing. And, uh, you know, we've got the problems with Russia and the Crimea. And, of course, the RD-180 is, is getting raked over the coals, the engine that, you know, comes from Russia but is used on the Atlas V. And essentially, it's like this. NASA's on a two-pronged approach. Commercial companies, private firms are going to be handed what NASA has been doing for the past five decades, low Earth orbit. And God love them. They're showing that they know exactly how to handle it. And, you know, in a couple of years, they'll be launching crews to the station. I got nothing but, but high fives for that all the way around. That's a great idea. What this should allow to happen is NASA can now focus on what it's, in my view at least, this is just my opinion, was always meant to be. And that is a pathfinder. And essentially, if, if, look at it this way, if NASA goes to the moon and it, it sets up a protocol and, and operations there for how to do that, great. And what it does is at that point, it then hands that over to the commercial. And then it goes to an asteroid or Mars. And that, that process is rinse and repeat. It's done over and over again. I don't, I don't even know how to, I mean, how, how one could think like this. It just doesn't make any sense. Essentially, what he's saying is to, to look at the full context, you've got to look at it like this. Commercial companies should be taking over LEO operations with astronauts in a year or so, a couple years, 2016, 2017. Meanwhile, alongside a different track is SLS and Orion, and that has nothing to do with LEO. Uh, you're going to hear people that are going to try to tell you otherwise. They're, they're not telling you the truth. SLS and Orion are not meant for LEO. They have nothing to do with it. So we're having problems with Russia, and if they say, they, they basically said, look, if what Bolden's comments essentially boil down to are this. If we get locked out of the station by the Russians, if if things deteriorate to that point, which is all LEO-based, the ISS is our only destination in LEO, much as some proponents want you to believe that we have multiple destinations for all these great commercial craft to go to, that's not true. We only have the ISS, and that's what the, the, the Soyuz and our astronauts are flying on. That's what the commercial companies are going to do. It has nothing to do with beyond Earth orbit. Essentially, though, if Russia locks us out, administrator Bolden is suggesting we cancel the other program we have that doesn't relate to the one that is infected. So it's in my view, it's kind of like this: say your your left arm has cancer, and you're going to lose it, and then it's it's lost. But since you lost your left arm, you go and cut your right one off. I'm I'm really I mean it, it just. The hamster has run off the wheels in my mind and is scurryingly, madly about the cage looking for this little uh, walnut called common sense, and he's not finding it. I don't understand what his thinking is on this at all. Colin Skokic is, is one of our writers, and to be honest, I didn't want to get near this uh, that much. I, I just opened my mouth and got very near it. But anyway, I let him write it, because he always has some very strong opinions on Administrator Boland's comments. And already, you know, the people are coming out that, that have, have, have a uh, agenda, and essentially, I, I don't know how much your readers or your listeners know about this, but there's a war going on in space. You have the, the pro-private, pro-commercial people, and President Obama has shown a lot of uh, interest and appreciation for their efforts. Bolton is an Obama-appointed official, and so oh, it's, it's not really surprising to me that he would suggest canceling a program that the President really didn't want And that the president has tried his level best and on a variety of occasions to marginalize and and cancel. So, I I mean, from that point, I understand it's political. But from another standpoint, it makes no sense to me because of this. We've done Leo for the past 50 years. We've been there. We've done that. We're not going to find that much new. There's not going to be a miracle planet that comes out of the woodwork and we suddenly have to go explore that. So it makes more sense to me. To do something to go beyond Earth orbit than it does to focus all our attention on doing the same thing that the space shuttle has done for the past three decades. We canceled the shuttle for a good reason; it was it wasn't safe. And to be quite honest, no one is impressed with going in, into lower Earth orbit anymore. So this is just wrong on so many different levels, and I, I I'm, I'm very disappointed that where we stand as a nation, it, it, that you know the the the. the we're a divided country, left and right, conservative, liberal, new space, old old space. It 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 is what it is, but it's really troublesome for me to see that we there's not one important topic that we can actually keep that out of. We can't, that divisiveness has to be in everything, and it's in space too. And I mean, that, I to me that that's what this is all really about.
1: I mean, I I saw these comments first on the article on uh, Spaceflight Insider, and It's surprising. I mean, first off, you think, well, we're part of the International Space Station, that we should still have something to do with it. And if Russia shuts us out, well, then obviously we don't have much of a choice of getting our astronauts there. Then we say, fine, we don't, you know, send up SpaceX to resupply or something. You don't say, fine, then we just cancel everything of ours. And, you know, well, too bad, too sad, we're not going into space any further. That seems kind of outlandish, and to be perfectly honest, I don't think anybody would let him do that, and I think they'd much rather fire him as administrator than let him cancel the entire manned program, essentially. But I just think this goes to show that this is a little bit shocking, and that there are some people with some radical ideas that I can guarantee not anybody else in the world is thinking right now, but... I don't know. I think this also just goes to show how disorganized, to be perfectly honest, NASA is at the moment, that they can't figure out exactly where they want to go with their main program, and at this point, NASA
2: Administrator Bolden's like, forget it. Well, to that, I'd I'd like to point out that, in my opinion, I don't see this as a NASA... and This this first statement is going to come across as really odd. I don't see this as a NASA problem, about their, their confusion or lack of direction. I see it more like this. Every time they're giving a given a direction or something to work on, the next four years, the other side comes into power. The next eight years, the, the other, quote-unquote, side comes into power. And they cancel everything that stops before, and they won't stop trying to cancel until they're out of office and the, the pendulum swing, swings back the other way. So it's it's not NASA's fault, in my opinion. What it is is NASA is, is being held hostage by our political system. It, it, they – they can't get anything done. We, they, they tried to get Constellation going, they, and then Obama came in and canceled everything. He made his great trip down to Kennedy where he made his announcement, and to me, I knew exactly what was really on his mind, not by the speech he gave, but by the fact that he went out to Slick 40 where SpaceX is, and he didn't go anywhere else. He didn't visit 39, 37, 41. He didn't visit any of those other pads. He visited just SpaceX's. He snubbed everybody that was involved with NASA for and he showed very clearly whose side he's on and you know which side that he supports so it's not a NASA issue in my view what it is it's 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 us it's who we are as a people, and we 're divided people there's just no nice way to say it it 's the truth
1: I kind of agree and kind of disagree with you on that one I mean.
2: Obviously, going back to what you were
1: saying a little bit earlier about the fact that, yeah, this is, you know, we have an administration change every so often and doing so, uh, there is no way that we could say, hey, let's set on one set path because just as we had Constellation going, then President Obama came in and said, forget that. But even so, I think within NASA, there's that conflict. For example, And I'm good friends and have talked with many times all these people, including Charlie Bolden, um, Lori Garver. She was all pro, you know, SLS and all this. And as soon as she left, she was she opened up and said, yeah, I'm not really for this anymore. So I think it's partly that. But I think it's also inside NASA that they're even conflicted on what they want to do. And I think now it's showing with, you know, uh, Charlie Bolden coming out and saying some of these things.
2: Well, I can, I can kind of agree with you on that, but i, I got to tell you, when I was with NASA back in 2007, you know, the, the news chief out there was during one of the little meetings we had. He, he basically said, look, I know what some of you all are thinking. Uh, you're worried about the hereafter, and I'm not talking about Jesus. What I'm talking about is when the next election cycle comes in, you'll be here after I'm gone. And so a lot of the people out there are looking over their shoulder. They're, they're not willing to stand up and say, hey, this is wrong. This is wasteful and, and foolish for us to stop and start programs every four years or every election cycle. And I think you're right, but for a different reason. I think you're right about the, the discord and the confusion within NAS, but I don't think it's because of the people so much as what those people have to live with day to day because of politics. I mean, that, but that's just my opinion. I mean, you know, as Dennis Miller used to say, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong.
1: And honestly, I think right now that's all that this is, is everyone's opinion. And that's why we are a free and open exchange of all things space, so we can voice our opinions on this, and so that you, the listener, can voice your opinion as well. We want to hear your thoughts. Obviously, we've said ours, and uh, if I could just say one more time, Charlie Bolden is a great man, a great person. Him and I have talked on multiple occasions. Um, And everybody who we've mentioned, I can't say a negative thing about any of the people I've met who've worked at NASA. But, I don't know. Well, that's where we're giving our Talking Space listeners now a chance to voice their opinions, now that you know ours. And we want to hear what you think about this. You know, you can always email us at mailbag at tweet us at Talking Space, or post it on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash talkingspace. Or use the Contact Us page on our brand new talkingspaceonline.com, which if you haven't checked out, please check it out. It's brand new, and I think you'll like it. All right then. So before this conversation sinks any further, let's talk about sinkholes and what NASA has to do with them.
0: Mark? Well, you know, sometimes things happen uh, sort of by accident. Well, this relates to a sinkhole that formed in Louisiana, an area called Bayou Corn, in August of 2012. It's a 25 acre sinkhole. Now, if you're not familiar with sinkholes, uh, with myself living here in Florida, you know, they're common hazards worldwide, but uh, we sure see our share of them sometimes in the south. Um, Depending on what is in your subterranean uh, geology, you can have water dissolving rock and opening up a cavern that when conditions are such that it loses sufficient support, ground actually drops hence sinkhole. Well, NASA had an airborne uh, radar system that was flying in 2012 and after the fact they looked back at this data and found that they saw indications that there was going to be a huge sinkhole before it actually collapsed. The interesting part of this, it, indi- it, it shows us that if you have radar data routinely collected from airborne systems or from satellites in some cases, you could forecast foresee a sinkhole before it happens, decrease danger to people and property in Florida, not too long ago, there was a sinkhole that formed under a house, and a man actually died. He disappeared. He literally went into the sinkhole and they heard him calling out you know when it happened, it was during the night, but they never recovered him. they never recovered his body or anything so it, it's it 's significant as far as property damage in the very least and, and in the worst case, you know uh, Hazard to, to life and limb, but researchers from JPL analyzed an interferometric synthetic aperture radar, and it was acquired during flights of the agency's uninhabited airborne vehicle synthetic aperture radar UAVSAR. Got to have an acronym. It uses a C twenty eight jet, and in June of twenty eleven and July of twenty twelve, it flew over this area in Louisiana, and it's this radar detects very subtle deformations in the Earth's surface. Now, their analysis showed the ground layer deformed significantly at least a month before the collapse, which coincides with the overflight of the aircraft over this area. And it actually uh, they measured a horizontal movement of up to 10.2 inches in the area where the sinkhole later formed. Now, these preliminary movements covered a much larger area. The area that they mapped was 1640 feet by 1640, which is 500 by 500 meters, approximately. And, it, you know, they actually mapped a larger area than the sinkhole. And the sinkhole initially was two acres, uh, later became a 25-acre sinkhole. And so I think it's kind of cool that, you know, here's NASA doing something to, in this case, to measure, you know, slight surface changes in, in southern Louisiana. And what they actually saw was a sinkhole before it happened. So... I just think that's a little bit of interesting technology, interesting scientific analysis and uh, some results that prove worthwhile and one of the non-space type things that NASA does that have a value to our uh, our society.
1: People always talk about what does NASA do for me and NASA spin-offs and things like that. Here's a perfect example, finding sinkholes before they happen. I. I mean, NASA satellites, there's so many things they're being used for, like now with the missing airplane, looking for that. Uh, Finding sinkholes, this is,
0: I just think this is awesome. Wouldn't it be cool to be part of the team that discovered this and had one of those uh, holy cow moments, look at this, and wait, look what happened afterwards? Talk about exciting. Talk about a a job satisfaction. (laughs) You know, if we could all be that fortunate to, to have those moments of uh, discovery.
1: Exactly. Who needs to, you know, to discover the biggest star or a supernova when you can discover a sinkhole and save a lot of lives? I think that's pretty cool. All right, so with that, we will sink through round number two and emerge in round number three, where we've got two quick stories to finish you off. The first one is the X-37B. If you don't remember what that is, well, that was a vehicle that looks a lot like a mini space shuttle, but is actually an unmanned aircraft belonging to the US Air Force. It's similar to the shuttle, its dimensions are slightly different, but it launched vertically on top of an Atlas V, and uh, in fact has done so three times. The first vehicle, OTV-1 as it was called, short for Orbital Test Vehicle, launched in April 2010, and was up for 225 days. The second one launched in March of 2011, and returned to Earth 469 days later in June 2012. Well, what about OTV3? That one, if you may recall, launched back on December 11th, 2012, and in fact was the first vehicle OTV1 reused, which was big enough on its own, but in addition, it also just beat its own record. OTV 3 reached 470 days in orbit on March 26, 2014, beating its previous record. It will eventually land back at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, when? We don't know, because they like to keep this thing secret. In fact, they're very secretive about when all of these launch as well, and they do not disclose its orbital plane. However, usually within a week, some amateur spotters have already found it, and then you can use Heavens Above to track it. But nonetheless, they try to keep it quiet. The X-37B, we don't know what it's doing up there, but it's solar-powered, and it's just hanging in there and doing whatever the Air Force wants it to do, and setting more records.
2: Well, I gotta say, for me, I'm kind of excited about uh, some events are, are surrounding the X-37B because, uh, as you may know, and I forgive me, I get OPS one through three confused. One of them has been tapped to serve as a processing facility for the OTV, and uh, what that is lead to is besides launches, having also having landings take place at uh, Kennedy Space Center on the SLF. And I'm, I'm I'm the head of Team Canaveral on our website. I mean, I, yeah, I own the website too. But besides that, I. I'm the geek that gets to go out and do a lot of the reporting there, so I've seen the the Atlas launch, but I've seen very little of the the the, uh, the actual space plane itself. So I'm kind of excited about the possibility of getting a chance to cover it, to shoot video or stills of it if they let me. You know, they they like you said, they're very secretive about it, but I think our chances of actually seeing it uh, go up a bit if you have an entire uh, you know swarm of reporters out there. That cover this beat on a regular basis, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to to seeing more of the spacecraft. It's it's one of the most unique things we do as a nation these days because it's it's the uh, you know of its design.
0: Yeah, I agree, Jason. It'd be nice to know a little bit about it. You know, how does it? How do you do that? How do you stay in orbit for so long? What are what are its capabilities? Uh, which, of course, a lot of that may not be divulged. But I think it's a phenomenal thing that what they have accomplished. And the opportunity to maybe hear just a little bit about it, I think, would uh, be quite interesting and maybe open some eyes for different ways of uh, operating in space to some extent, not necessarily manned, but certainly unmanned.
2: Well, know they've talked about making an X-37C. Uh, have you guys talked about that on here? Not really, no. Well, there's not a lot been said about it. It originally appeared on space.com. I'm not, forgive me, my memory has massive holes you could drive a semi through but i i seem to recall them saying that it would be used for uh commercial uh, crew ccp the commercial crew program it was suggested and so they they're actually looked into it i i gotta be honest from a space geek perspective not as a reporter not as a journalist but myself and a number of other peoples with other outlets out there mike killian over at america space others they 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 all say they, they love seeing dream chaser well it's because as, as interesting as, as, as a capsule is, there's something about a spacecraft that astronauts take to orbit and then fly back in like a plane. It just – it's – I hate to use the, the word. It's more science fiction-y. You know, it's, it's more fantastic, and it's just plain cool. I mean, when you see these things coming in and you hear the double sonic booms, it just it, – it's, it's an amazing experience. And I've got to be honest, I don't know where that project is right now, but I hope they pursue it. I really do. I think that would be great.
0: Ditto. I'm with you.
1: Oh, yeah. So, uh, X-37B still up there, and when it lands, well, we'll all be surprised together. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, rather than ending things with Dusk, we're going to end things with Dawn.
0: Mark? All righty. Well, I'll make this quick. Uh, Orbital, who is uh, part of the design and uh, in- industrial power behind the Dawn spacecraft, Uh, They congratulated, this is a press release, they congratulated the NASA JPL Dawn Flight Team for receiving the 2014 National Air and Space Museum Trophy. Now the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum presents a trophy annually to recognize achievement in the management or execution of a scientific or technological project. Uh, The Dawn Flight Team got that award for this year. Last year was the uh, Mars Science Lab Entry, Descent and Landing Team. Uh, 2012 was the cassini huygens flight team, 2011 was Michael Suffredini in the ISS program office. So it's, uh, oh, 2010 was the flight crew of U.S. Airways Flight 1549, none other than Chesley Sullenberger and uh, the rest of the crew of that aircraft. So it's an interesting award. And just for background, Dawn is the spacecraft that was launched September 2007. Got a gravity cyst arrived at Vesta out in the asteroid belt in July of 2011 it left Vesta July of 2012 a year later it's going to arrive at Ceres a dwarf planet February of 2015 so less than a year from now and it will have about a uh, five month primary mission uh, ending there at Ceres which hopefully the mission may get an extension, who knows, I haven't looked into the details because this flight is such a long duration uh, mission. And Dawn is kind of unique in the fact that it has an ion propulsion system which is accelerating the spacecraft and decelerating it when it, it needs to for maneuvering continuously. So it's it's got something quite unique about it. The instruments that they're studying both uh, Dawn and Ceres with consist of a visible camera and a visible and infrared mapping spectrometer, uh, a gamma ray neutron spectrometer, and uh, you know they're getting our first look at some of the oldest objects in the solar system that relate to an understanding of how the solar system formed. So all of that said, congratulations on the Dawn flight team for receiving this uh, prestigious award. They've done a good job, and uh, that's it for me.
1: Well, congratulations to them. And I think with that, that's it for us. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us,
0: Mark Radiman. Good to be here, and been a lot of fun. I like to learn stuff, and once again, have have heard some good things.
1: Oh yeah, it's All- always a learning experience on this show. And thank you as well for joining us, Jason Ryan. Thank you very much, Sawyer and Mark. I appreciate being on your show. You know we love having you on, and Talking Space is always proud to be a partner of the Spaceflight Group. And go ahead and check them out once again at spaceflightinsider.com. They are a great source for all things space news. And, of course, we thank you for joining us here on Talking Space. And if you want another website to check out, once again, check out the new talkingspaceonline.com and let us know what you think. But we will be back next episode, and we hope you will too. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.